This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to The Health Podcast, a new season from BBC Good Food. I'm Tracy Ray, Qualified Nutritionist and Health Editor here at BBC Good Food. In this series, I'll be your host as we explore the world of health and wellness through a series of interviews with renowned and innovative experts across the globe, where I'll be seeking out some of the best practical tips and advice they have to offer. Remember that all content provided here is for informational purposes only. If you have any questions or concerns related to your personal health, you should first seek the advice of your local healthcare practitioner. This week, I'm talking to registered dietitians Taya Batoye and Anjani Koali about healthy eating guidelines and why we need to be doing more to foster cultural inclusivity within them. We'll be exploring why representation matters when it comes to healthy guidelines, some of the key limitations within our current guidelines, and how lack of inclusion is affecting the health outcomes of our communities. Hi, Tai, Anjani. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. It's so lovely to have you here. Um, I'm really excited about this discussion. Thank you. We're excited to be here too. (laughs) Yes, thank you for having us. Absolutely. So before we get into it, I was wondering if you could both share a little bit about yourselves, what you do, um, and what drew you to work in the dietetic field. 
Anjani, if you'd like to start. Okay. Um, so I didn't really have what people would call the conventional route into this field um, because a lot of people that I've come across, they've, you know, straight out of uh, school, like when they're 18 years old, then they might go straight into the field. But uh, my first degree was a law degree, which is completely different to anything related to nutrition. Um, but I, yeah. I didn't pursue it as a career because I didn't really do the greatest in it and I wasn't very passionate about it. So I was working in a part-time job in a pharmacy and I was still a little bit lost about what I wanted to do. Um, but what I did know was that I was really interested in nutrition. Um, I was one of those mm. people that, you know, when I was growing up, then I, I kind of was always um, wanted to lose some weight. I was always on a diet or something like that. And I just thought, I just want to look into what exactly is healthy eating instead of just being kind of a bit obsessive about food. Um, so I just started looking into nutrition and exercise and found that I really enjoyed it. So I thought, what can I do that kind of pursues, that kind of, um, you know, combines healthcare and nutrition because I really did enjoy my pharmacy job too. Um, and I came across dietetics. So then I just went back to college and I went into into dietetics and it was a hard it was a hard thing to do because it was five more years in education but I really enjoyed it um and mm. at the moment I work in the NHS as a community pediatric dietitian so I graduated in 2019 and I've been working in the field ever since um and also on the side I post informative videos and um, recipe videos as well just about nutrition and also just some of some of the myths that kind of come along with nutrition as well and especially those that affect the South Asian community, because that's something that I'm quite passionate about. And before the pandemic, I was volunteering in a local temple as well. So that's the local Sikh temple where I just wanted to use my knowledge to help people that didn't really access healthcare routinely. So I just thought, let's just take yes. it to them. So that's a bit. And then through Instagram, I got connected with Thai and so many other amazing dietitians that are doing similar things in the space. Um that was a lot. So over to you, Ty. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Anjani. And I guess we have quite similar backgrounds because my first degree was actually in forensic science. So, um, you know, I studied forensic science and then after graduating, I worked as a forensic scientist, um, which was really, really cool. I did some amazing things. I met some amazing people. Um, but unfortunately, my dad developed a serious heart condition and he had to go into hospital and undergo different medical treatments. Um, so it was quite a challenging time for the family. Um, he was advised by his doctor to make certain changes to his diet. And at the time, actually, my diet wasn't the most balanced <laughs> of all diets. Um, but because of my dad's heart condition and the changes he had to make in his diet, um, I had to make those changes as well. And just the family as well, we just had to make certain positive dietary changes and this required a lot of research on diet and nutrition a lot of checking healthy recipes online and also changing the way we cook certain traditional meals and so I then developed such a keen interest in nutrition I really wanted to gain a further understanding when it came to diet and nutrition so I decided to go back to university and do my degrees in, well, my first degree, well, my second degree actually <laughs> was in human nutrition. So that was a master's degree. And then I went back to university again to do a degree in dietetics to become a dietitian. And then I went back again to university to do my 
my PhD in food and nutritional sciences. So in terms of what I currently do now, I'm a freelance registered dietitian. I specialise in nutrition support for adults. Um, I also specialise in nutrition and rehabilitation, women's health and African and Caribbean diets. So a lot of the work that I do is around those areas. Um, I mentioned that I went back to university to do my PhD. So I'm currently a doctoral researcher in food and nutritional sciences, as well as that I'm also a health writer and I'm quite active on social media too. Wow, what extensive backgrounds. It's so interesting that both of you came from um, different degrees initially, but then kind of through um, your own kind of life experience gravitated towards um, dietetics and nutrition. And I was curious... um, listening to you, Anjani, you specialize in pediatric dietetics. Does that mean that you see a lot of uh, children and and young kids Mm -hmm. clinically? Yeah, I suppose uh, during the time of the pandemic now, we don't really get to see a lot of them face to face, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, in general, yes, I do. So um, in some of the areas that I tend to see children in, it's faltering growth. So if they're having trouble putting weight on for any reason, we might go down the nutrition support route, which is similar to what Ty does as well, or even something like enteral feeding, so that's tube feeding, or even children mm. with allergies as well. So um, lots of things like cow's milk protein allergies or other multiple allergies and also things like autism as well, because the diet mm. is usually, with a lot of children, we see that they're quite restricted. So how can we help the child uh, get a healthier, more balanced diet while considering yeah. their conditions? Mm-hmm. Amazing. So we have a children's dietetic specialist and an adult mm-hmm. dietetic specialist. Yes. <laughs> yes. Perfect. <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely perfect. <laughs> um, so the field of dietetics has a strong focus on public health as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a central part of that is our national healthy eating guidelines here in the UK. Could you tell us a little bit about what these are and what their purpose is for the general population, for those who may not be familiar? Um, So the main guidelines that we tend to maybe signpost the general public towards would be the the Eat Well Guide. So um, Mm -hmm. the main aim of that is just to show the proportions of what we eat from each food group and to achieve a healthy, balanced diet overall. So I think a few years ago, it used to be the Eat Well Plate, It looks like a plate if you see it, but it's not a plate. That's what we really want to kind of uh, make clear that because that kind of puts too much pressure on people to think every single plate has to be perfect and it needs to be in these exact proportions. That's a great Mm -hmm. point, actually, Anjani, in terms of just specifying that Mm -hmm. your plate doesn't need to look exactly like the the perfect little kind of triangles that we see in the Eat Well plate. Because I think sometimes Mm -hmm. you can look at these things and think, oh, my meal doesn't look anything like that, mm-hmm. but that's that's really good to know. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to the current healthy eating guidelines um, that we do have, so take the the Eat Well plate, for example, that's um, giving us the, the suggested recommendations for our carb- carbohydrate intake, for our proteins, for our fruits, for our vegetables. Um, What are some of the key limitations that we're seeing when it comes to recognizing the cultural differences within our dietary patterns um, within this eat well plate? Ty, do you want to take that one? Yes, yes, sure. So some of the limitations that we have seen as nutritional professionals is that the healthy eating guideline isn't as 
culturally inclusive as we would like it to be. However, when it comes to guidelines, we know that it's just a guide. um, Mm. So it can be adapted. It can be tailored to meet an individual's or a group's food preference or dietary habits or just to reflect their cultural diets. And so in this situation, what I guess we do as nutrition professionals is to adapt such healthy eating guidelines to meet the nutritional needs of different individuals and not just the nutritional needs but also their cultural needs and their religious needs and also their social needs too. So Mm. um, I guess in terms of the limitations we see that it doesn't include certain cultural foods that some people may identify with um, or may be familiar with However, the onus is on nutrition professionals like registered dietitians and registered nutritionists to ensure that these guidelines are culturally inclusive to Mm. people that they see. I think that's a really good point, actually, in in that just the specification that these Eat Well guidelines or the Healthy Eating Guidelines they are a generalized recommendation. And if there are people out there listening or who come across these guidelines that have unique dietary needs, that they really need to be going to see a nutrition professional to get that kind of more personalized recommendation. So I didn't grow up in the UK, um, so I don't have the experience of attending school here. But when considering the impact that lack of inclusion has when it comes to eating guidelines, my mind immediately goes to school children. Um, Because when speaking to friends and colleagues about their experience, something that often comes up for those who didn't necessarily eat what we might consider to be standard British foods um, is the teasing they would get over foods that they brought from their homes to nourish their bodies. And I often wonder, you know, as kids, we can sometimes be quite fickle in in ways. Um, But if in fact we did see greater representation and variety of foods within these national guidelines, even if they are just a general recommendation um, that are being advertised to us, would it even be a strange thing to see such variety in the schoolyard and you know or would it just be the norm i wondered what you thought about that i i think it it would definitely be better for for children you know if they were experiencing like teasing or something because for example when i was a child like if my mom said to me to take dal and rice to school I would just be like, no, I want sandwiches, just like the rest of the children, you know. But, but you mm. know, kind of looking at it now, um, dal is lentils and, you know, it's got fibre and protein and, you know, rice has got carbohydrates, you know. It's a perfectly well-balanced meal. Um, but now I would say I would have no problem. It might be to do with being an adult. I would have no problem in taking dal and rice to work and potentially stinking out the microwave. <laughs> but I do, like, I feel like, you know, because it's becoming more culturally accepted I would say in the wider space to be more adventurous with your food and you know Mm. you don't just have to have like sandwiches or like a salad or something like that so I think for children as well I feel like if there was a message out there that everybody else was eating in this way and say for example if you did show them the eat well guide in school if you do say oh under the carbohydrates portion then uh, rice is already in there but say for example if you say like a chapati like rotis in there 
or if in mm. the dairy section, then paneer is in there, which is like an Indian kind of cheese. And, you know, I feel like if something like that is readily explained while they're in school by teachers and other children would also be present, I feel like it would mean that they are more inclusive and it would mean that children would be more comfortable to take things like that into school with them. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree with everything that Anjani said. And actually, um, a few years ago, I worked with a school um, alongside the charity. And what we implemented was culture days um, during the month. And during these days, this is when children can dress in their native wear or their cultural um um, traditional clothings and then also bring their cultural dish to school um, and this was a way to educate other children and even the teachers um, in terms of different types of food that people may eat from different ethnic minority groups and it was actually such a very successful um, initiative a lot of people were able to know about different types of foods so that it's not seen as uncommon um, mm. because you know raising awareness on different cultural foods and just including that in this in this space at the moment is so important and you know a lot of children felt more accepted as well and obviously children are very curious they want to know every little thing so it was a way that children were bonding with each other and it was just a really beautiful experience to see that happen so I feel like more schools should consider doing things like that like doing more cultural awareness days or doing days where children can just bring in their cultural foods into school as packed lunch um but yes I think that's a very good initiative Mm. and I think you know as you say kids are quite receptive and curious and interested to learn new things so as you both work clinically um and you have experience seeing clients one-to-one um I wanted to ask how does if at all the lack of of recognition sometimes of of some of these more um traditional foods affect the health outcomes of the patients that you see is there ever a conversation so for example if you're seeing um a patient who's been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and maybe they're seeking um, some dietary advice in terms of how to manage that. Um, Is there ever the conversation around um, kind of what foods to eat? Is there any kind of difficulty around that if if some of the standard recommendations um, are kind of talking very British forward foods? Um, I think that Uh, From some charities and things that are out there, say like Diabetes UK or the British Heart Foundation, I found that in my experience, thankfully, they're starting to tailor a lot of the healthy eating guidelines. Um, Yeah, for for like a South Asian diet or maybe like an African diet. So I feel like it's really good that that kind of information is out there and available. Um, But I think in general, research will show that, say, for example, if a patient feels like they're that their healthcare provider isn't tail- isn't providing tailored advice and that might mean that they're less likely to access healthcare services which could then lead to like worse um outcomes in terms of health outcomes and maybe maybe that their diabetes isn't as well controlled because they feel like they're not being listened to because it it is it is difficult say for example if somebody gives you in air quotes like an unrealistic um swap like say for example if somebody likes 
Bombay mix and then you're told, oh, swap it for popcorn because it's got more fiber in it. Mm. You know, it's 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 not going to be the same. So say, for example, somebody who's looked into that would say, oh, how about if you kind of do half of your portion of Bombay mix and then put some chopped salad on there? Um, so that makes a mm. dish called Belpuri, which is like a like an Indian street food. So then, you know, you're not completely giving unrealistic recommendations, but you're still kind of tailoring the advice to your to your patient. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. I have a few points to ask you on that, mm-hmm. but just starting from what you said, if people don't feel supported by their, their healthcare provider or perhaps feel like they're getting some unrealistic recommendations, mm-hmm. what can someone do in that situation? Can we, you know, seek out an appointment with, with a different healthcare provider? Are there um, some, you know, organizations that we can reach out to to get help? What do we do if we're faced with a health condition and we feel like we're not being seen in, in, in the treatment for that? Um, I would say that obviously this is this is like a there are barriers in terms of say for example like finances if somebody wanted to go to somebody mm. private yeah so that's the thing yeah. so I'm not sure if under the NHS that you could actually ask for somebody specifically but I think that maybe going to the the websites and things that I'd mentioned so like Diabetes UK or British Heart Foundation Absolutely. And just to add on to that, I I think that if anyone feels like they're not represented or Mm -hmm. feel heard when it comes to nutrition advice, they should actually make the concerns known Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't stay silent or Mm. keep quiet about it. And they should actually speak up, especially in a healthcare setting, because when it comes to um, healthcare professionals and nutrition professionals, the advice, the services and the care that we actually provide should be patient or client centred. Mm-hmm. So basically putting the individual's needs in the centre um, of what they do. So not just their nutritional needs, but also their cultural needs or their social needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so they shouldn't be silent. They should actually speak up and let them know that, you know, I don't feel heard I don't feel represented um and as Angie said as well you know we can actually signpost um clients or patients to um nutrition professionals or health professionals from a similar cultural or religious background if that's what they need um so it can be a thing where you know so in in my um so I've got experience where I've had to actually refer a patient to another dietitian from a similar background just because I didn't know enough about the cultural foods um 
And I basically recognised my limitations and had to actually educate myself on their cultural food. But at that point of time, I wasn't able to help them. So I was able to refer that patient to um, a dietitian from a similar background. Um, And as Angie said as well, we've got um, different resources online from trusted health organisations like the Diabetes UK and the British Heart Foundation, um, where they actually provide um, evidence-based material tailored towards different ethnic minority groups. Um, When it comes to nutrition professionals, specifically registered dietitians, um, as part of the British Dietetic Association, we do have a freelance dietitian specialist group website where people can find dietitians in private practice to speak to. And there are profiles of different dietitians from different ethnic backgrounds and different specialities. So it might be worth for um, individuals to go on the website. So it's www.freelancedietitians.org where they can find a dietitian from a similar background if that's what they want to see and who can best support them. That's really, really good information to have. And I think, you know, just a few points that that you mentioned. First of all, um, the the recognition that not only is it okay, but it's encouraged to speak up. Because I think sometimes it can feel quite intimidating, particularly in like health or medical situations. You're already in a vulnerable situation if you're not feeling the best, if your health isn't as good as it could be. Um, and I think it can feel a bit intimidating to to kind of speak up if, if something doesn't feel right. But it's very encouraging when you hear professionals who work in the industry like yourself saying no no you know please speak up let it be heard um let us know how you're feeling what your needs are and we can try and figure out what's best for you um and also I guess the recognition that you know even as health professionals we all have our limitations um because as you say, you know, people who work in in the nutrition or dietetic field are trained to to look at different foods and put them into a balanced uh, diet and and tailor the needs for an individual's uh, requirements. But of course, when we're bringing traditional foods um, into it or, you know, various cultural uh, differences or societal differences, you know, those are those extra considerations. So trying to find someone that can look at the foods that you enjoy and figure out how to make them healthier and how to create healthier versions so you feel supported and heard in, in your pursuits. I guess a little bit on the the part of, of what we can do and what's being done is there anything that you're aware of being done to address the issue of inclusion on a national level I know Ty and uh, you mentioned some of those brilliant resources but I know that I uh, actually came across both of you well I, I knew you Ty but I came across you when I was signing up to the change.org petition Um, and I just wondered. Yes, so I guess just to firstly say that there are so many organisations out there who are making active changes and to make healthy eating advice more culturally inclusive. Um, More recently, actually, Public Health England launched the Better Health campaign 
to encourage people to eat more healthier and maintain a healthy weight as well. Um, And what I really loved about this campaign was that it was very, very inclusive. So the nutrition advice that was implemented in this campaign was tailored to African and Caribbean and South Asian groups too, which I loved. And they actually partnered with dietitians from different ethnic backgrounds to talk about certain cultural diets. So that's something that has been really, really um, successful. Um, And, you know, I previously mentioned about um, other health organisations like the British Heart Foundation and Diabetes UK, who have developed um, resources for ethnic minority groups who may consume traditional and cultural foods. Um, And so that was, you know, that is all online on their website in terms of how they can manage their condition through traditional and cultural foods, which is really, really good. So we are making steps in making nutrition and healthy eating advice more inclusive and also addressing the lack of diversity. However, we do have <laughs> a long way to go. Um, but, you know, there are so many dietitians and nutritionists out there who are making steps to address the issue online, within the community and in in hospital settings as well. So there's more to just raise more awareness, um, raise more awareness on the needs for more culturally um, sensitive nutrition information, raising more awareness on how we can um, tailor our advice to different ethnic minority groups. Um, it's, it's so important. And, you know, one thing that I, I really want to say is that, you know, Promoting cultural awareness or diversity, especially in this health space, is a shared responsibility. A lot of people think that it's only just one person or one organisation that needs to do the job. So maybe the job is just for Public Health England or just for the NHS. But we all have a role to play, you know. Magazines have a role to play, newspaper articles have a role to play, editors have a role to play, um, TV directors and producers who host certain nutrition programmes um, on TV. Like We all have a role to play to just um, showcase different diverse backgrounds, showcase the needs for more cultural inclusion when it comes to nutrition advice. So, you know, there's so many things that we can do. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) That's amazing. And I mean, you've definitely educated me on all the amazing resources that are out there that there's, you know, there's a lot going into this already. And it's about kind of continuing to to raise the awareness and all contributing as 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 a whole to to improve this situation. Mm -hmm. I think even not just on a national level, but maybe what can we do on an individual level as well, and maybe in terms of in our organisations. In my full-time job, like in the NHS, I've committed to teaching an ethnic diets tutorial. So that's just for dietetic students and also staff members as well, just kind of teaching people about the health disparity. So that's on a on a kind of, it's, it's on a more like individual level, but it's been really well received by um, staff and also students that come into our department as part of their training. And I think, like Ty said, it's not just one person's responsibility. And also, we're all learning from each other as well. So like Ty had said, she'd recognised her limitations when it came to a certain cultural diet. So then she signposted to somewhere else. Um, And also in the tutorial that I did, I had um, an attendee that was uh, from like a Cypriot background. And I'll admit that I, I, I I don't know many things about the Cypriot diet. So he taught me so much. 
about his diet as well. So it's really great to kind of learn from each other as well, because like Ty had said, it's not just that there's one individual in this space that is doing all, all of the work. We're all learning from each other. And I think we're all really happy mm. to learn from each other as well. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I guess nutrition professionals can learn from each other, but then we can also learn from the clients we mm-hmm. see and the patients yeah. we see and just the uh, members of the general public. So mm-hmm. it's all a learning game at the moment. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm wondering, actually, just from, from you talking about that and experience of maybe uh, meeting clients or or patients that you're less familiar with with some of their um kind of cultural foods and things like that you know are there particular sticking points that you're seeing in terms of um the the health requirements of of people or not really in terms of the health requirements personally myself um but sometimes I might see that Say, for example, with some patients, I'm just thinking of that they might um, try and, in air quotes, like get by, like they might think that, oh, you know, I know enough English to carry on with the consultation and maybe um, I'll just kind of talk about the closest sounding word. So say, for example, if somebody had said, oh, I eat Um. bread like with vegetables and then it turns out that they're eating something like roti or a puri, which is like deep fried or a batura, which is also deep fried. So then you're kind of missing something in there. Or say, for example, when I had um, a Vietnamese patient, then she'd said that she was giving her child porridge for three meals a day. And I just thought, oh, I don't know how well balanced this diet is. But then when I got a translator in, I just said, I'd said at the beginning of the conversation, oh, would you, do, do you want me to get a translator? And she said, no. And then I'd kind of just asked her again. Um, and she said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that it was a Vietnamese kind of porridge that was made out of rice, either fish or vegetable stock with like fish or vegetables Mm. and vegetables on there as well. And I just thought, oh, right, okay. So there's kind of, you know, say, for example, if some patients are, um, they're kind of saying the nearest possible word, maybe just to kind of try and make their healthcare professional's life easier, we would rather get the full get the full story and we would kind of use everything that's in our toolkit, really. So say, for example, like the translator that that we might kind of bring on board to help fill in the gaps. So... For anybody out there who is listening, who doesn't feel heard or represented when it comes to nutritional advice, are there some practical things that maybe we could share now um, that they might be able to consider when looking at their plate? Because I guess in my mind, I often think, yes, there's a lot of of differences to, to some of the cultural foods, but there are kind of some nutritional threads running through in terms of, you know, that you can look at your plate and think, is this really greasy? Is there a lot of oil? Do I need to try and reduce the oil in the way that I prepare this? Am I seeing a, a vegetable in this dish? Um, yeah, so like you'd said, I would say to be mindful of how much oil that's being used in the cooking process. Um, also, so that's something, say, for example, speaking from my own experience, like say if I'm making like a Punjabi curry, then we'd be mindful of, uh, first of all, the amount of ghee that we're using and also instead of free pouring, trying to measure how much you're using as well yeah. and maybe be mindful of how much salt that w- that we're using in our dishes as well adding something like spices instead of using salt is something that we're well placed to do uh, you know when we're thinking about cultural food so that is like a pretty easy swap um 
and then also using like whole grain or, or wholemeal varieties of things where possible as well. Like rice, mm -hmm. wholemeal rice, wholemeal um, yeah. flours, or even some kind of like lentils. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All cultural foods can fit um, in a healthy, balanced diet, but it's just educating them on their cooking methods, maybe. So maybe instead of frying chicken consider baking it instead um or instead of um in in my culture actually we tend to deep fry our spinach when we're making certain stews and obviously we know that spinach is a really good source of nutrients but not many people are aware that when you actually deep fry it you are losing all of the nutrition <laughs> inside of that so again it's more around cooking methods and trying to show people healthier cooking alternatives when it comes to their meals so you know you can still have your so we call it FRE roll which is basically a type of spinach stew um and we say that you know you can still have it without drenching it in palm oil or oil you know maybe just use a tiny bit um, or measure the amount of oil in your cooking instead of re-pouring it um so again we just look at different um healthy alternatives um and then it, when it comes to ingredients as well i tell people that you know all food fits but you know there are different ways you can make healthier alternatives just simply by reading the nutritional labels of of your traditional foods um most um foods come in certain packagings where they have the nutritional value um of the food on their labels so again it's just reading that and seeing what that might look like so um in some front of pack nutrition labels they use um different colours, different um, colour-coded nutrition information that tells us if a food has either high, medium or low amounts of fat, saturated fats, sugars and salt. And again, it's just educating people saying that if you see a red colour, that means something is high in fat or saturated fats, sugars and salt. If it's an amber colour, it means that it's either has a medium amount of fat, sugar and salt. Or if it's green, it means that it has a low amount of fat, saturated fats, sugars and salt. So again, it's more just educating people when it comes to nutrition um, and letting people know that when you are doing your shopping, you know, read the nutritional labels and go for those foods that have the more green on the label, that means that it is the healthier choice, that it has low amounts of fats, sugar or salt. Um, but then if you want to buy those foods that have the maybe amber colours or the red colours, it indicates that you can actually consume it but have it less often and small amounts. So mm. that's the way that I like to educate people, um, especially with the nutritional contents as well, because in some cultural shops um, or ethnic shops, they don't always have the nutritional composition on their packaging. So I tell people, you know, go online if you can, look at recipes of some of your traditional meals online and see the um, information. Um, if it has a certain amount of fat or salt or sugar, also look at the calorie content of that as well, because that can actually help to inform in your healthy eating choices. Mm, that's really, really great advice. And I think the the big message that I took from that, which I absolutely love, is that no food is off limits, really. It's just about maybe looking at it in a different way. So can you prepare it 
in a healthier way, you know, with less oil? Or can you maybe replace some of the salt with some more spices? Can you look at it in a different way so that it's it's healthier for you, but you're still enjoying all of your favorite meals? So we, we're at the end of our time, um, but I always love to finish with the question about cake because I know when I was growing up, I always looked at health professionals, particularly people who worked in nutrition as just these beacons of, of perfect uh, place. That's so not true. Um, <laughs> exactly. We're the worst. So, so this is why... This is why I always ask this question at the end of this series, just to kind of break down this idea that you can't be healthy and also enjoy cake or treats and things like that. So I'd love to hear from both of you um, when you're craving something sweet or a savory treat. um, What's your favorite cake bake situation? Then if I was to go for a dessert, I would be like a chocolate girl over like a fruity dessert every time. I feel like I am that kind of person. <laughs> so um, brownies, but homemade brownies, they have to be. like. And I'm not just saying yeah. this, but I always go for, you know, the BBC Good Food, the best ever brownies, that recipe, just because it's the first one when you search it on a well-known search engine. And and it's just, you know, it's really good. <laughs> it never, it never Those fails. Those are good brownies. But also, I felt like I'm going to make it into a not quick fire thing. I needed to also mention a cultural dessert as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever had something called Ras Malai before. Um, so it's like a cold, like milky dessert. So it's made out of like spongy, spongy paneer balls, but it's sweet. And it's in like... Um, a milk that's flavoured with like almonds and cardamom and saffron and it's just really good. What about yourself, Ty? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, but I would say my go-tos are any type of chocolate cake. I, I love a, ch- a good chocolate cake um, or an Oreo cake. Um, I love Oreos as well. So those are like my go-to types of cakes. Um, and my birthday's coming up, so I've literally t- t- told all of my friends <laughs> to get me chocolate cakes because, yeah, I love chocolate. Um, in terms of cultural snacks um, or my favourite cultural um, treats, I would say Puff Puff, which is just amazing. So basically Puff Puff is a sweet fried dough ball. Um, and you basically it's basically made out of um, dough containing flour, yeast, sugar, butter, salt, water and eggs and you basically deep fry it in vegetable oil um of course it's very high in saturated fats and calories so you know this is something that I have to be mindful of because it's highly addictive um but it's one of my favorite snacks yeah I love it (laughs) now now I'm craving it now (laughs) same I know I just want a big chocolate yeah. cake now. But I always love that, you know, all the great research we have on chocolate. So you can always just kind of push back and say, well, listen, it's very rich in antioxidants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that might be a little bit of a stretch with all the, the butter and the sugar and the yeah. flour. Listen, anyway, that's, I'm afraid that's all we have time for, but... Thank you so much, Anjani and Ty, for taking the time to be here. 
that was such an enriching conversation and I really hope that our listeners have learned as much as I have. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BBC Good Food Health Podcast. For more information, visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode.